Well, welcome back. We are in Acts chapter 20. We are actually going to finish Acts chapter 20 today, and God willing, move into Acts chapter 21. We are coming down, as you can see, if you look toward the end of the book of Acts, we are coming down the home stretch here. Uh, This is the final chapter in Paul's ministry, at least according to the book of Acts. There is some argument uh, among biblical scholars that Paul would be imprisoned in Rome, but then would be released temporarily and would go on to have a fruitful ministry in some other places. For example, some have suggested that Paul went as far as Spain and began establishing churches there before he was ultimately arrested a second time and taken to Rome and imprisoned and ultimately executed on the Ostian Way outside the imperial capital. Uh, That may be true, and there's some evidence to suggest that that may have been the case, but we have no direct testimony to that effect. Uh, Nothing that suggests that in the New Testament, nothing that suggests that in the book of Acts. As far as the book of Acts is concerned, the Apostle Paul will make his final journey to, to Rome, He will stand trial before the emperor for capital crimes, namely for declaring that there was another king than Caesar, and ultimately Paul would be executed. He would be beheaded. So at least as far as the book of Acts is concerned, we are on the downhill slope. We are making our way toward Jerusalem with the apostle Paul, and eventually he'll make his way to Rome, where he will stand trial, but where he will also, in accord with what Jesus had told his disciples, bear witness before kings and governors. Now, as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem at this point, having made that final tour of the mission field, we're told that he stopped uh, at Troas, and then he continued on, and he eventually landed at Miletus, and eventually he called to him the Ephesian elders. And he brought them to him so that he might give them some final instructions. It's interesting to note that Paul did not stop at Ephesus On this second occasion, uh, he did not decide to go back there and preach there. Uh, Paul was intent on getting to Jerusalem in time for the festival. And so we're told that while he was hastening to Jerusalem, he stopped at Miletus and sent, verse 17, to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he had some final instructions. This is commonly referred to as the farewell to the Ephesian elders. And I pointed out to you last week this This section, the latter part of chapter 20, is very touching because we see Paul as both the public figure, the man who preached and taught and evangelized and established all these churches, but we also see Paul, the private man. Uh, We see Paul in his flesh and blood. We see Paul as a man who had great compassion for these people who were very dear to his heart. We said that this section contains four parts. First of all, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of his own life and ministry among them, a little portion of his testimony. Then he goes on to give them a charge. He reminds them of their responsibility as the leaders of the church. Then Paul prays for them. He commends them to the care and to the will of God. And finally, he reminds them as he prepares to leave them for the last time, incidentally. He makes it very clear they will never see him again in this life And yet they are not to despair because he reminds them this life is not all there is. So let's just do a brief review of what we covered last week so that you can be uh, in a good place to finish this section before we move on. So we said, what was Paul's testimony? Well, the first thing that Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of is the way that he had served with them in great humility. 
he writes this in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Uh, Paul served them with humility. Now, this was not a false humility. Uh, this was Paul's way of saying, remember that I was not pointing to myself. My responsibility was to point you to Jesus Christ. I did not have the answers to your problems. I was not your savior. I was not the light of the world, but I was called to bear witness to the light. This is a very important part of Christian witness. And I'm going to talk about that in the sermon this Sunday for Missions Sunday. So if you're in church, you'll hear more about that at that time. But Paul said the first thing was that he served them with great humility. The second thing Paul says is that he served them with tears. He served with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I said last week that I don't think Paul was what we would call a weepy person. Uh, I've never found those ministers who see it as their task to make the congregation cry as to be particularly effective when it comes to witnessing to the gospel. And I don't think that Paul, there's nothing in the book of Acts that suggests that he was that kind of person who would try to manipulate people emotionally. But I think what Paul was, was very sincere. And not just sincere, but I think that he had great empathy for the struggles that people went through. I don't think Paul saw himself as somehow being above everybody else, as being holier than thou. Paul knew from his own life in Judaism, in which he had been a persecutor of the church, that people struggle, that they sin, that they fall, and that they need to be redeemed. And I think he had great compassion for people. Now, sometimes Paul can come across as a little strong. Sometimes he can come across as a little offensive to people. But I think there's a reason for that. We'll get to that today as well. But I still think that Paul was a very empathetic person. He understood he had great compassion for people. There's an indicator that he had great compassion for his own people. And he had great compassion for these people in Ephesus as well. If you're going to be an effective minister, you've got to have empathy. What's the old saying? How's the old saying go? To love the saints above, oh, that indeed will be glory. But to love the saints below, well, that's another story. And uh, sometimes it's true, isn't it? Oh, well, we can love those who have gone on to glory, but those down below, they're, they're a little more difficult. I think Paul loved people. I don't think that he would have been able to go out and endure all that he did at the hands of his enemies if he didn't love people. If you're going to be effective, you've got to serve with humility. You've got to be empathetic. You've got to be sympathetic. You've got to be sincere. Paul says he also preached to them, and he preached diligently. Uh, we can see this throughout his entire ministry, but he reminds them of that fact here in Acts chapter 20. He reminds them of the fact that he preached publicly. We saw that when he was in Ephesus. He rented out that whole lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he preached for several hours every single day of the week, preaching the gospel to them. But he didn't just preach in a public forum. He also preached privately. We said that he went from house to house, that he catechized the believers. He strengthened the church. He equipped them for the work of ministry. We're told that Paul preached to everybody. He said, I preached from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks. So Paul didn't confine his ministry to a select few people. He preached to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Now, that's significant because we oftentimes think of Paul as the great missionary to the Gentiles, don't we? But he did preach to the Jews as well. We saw early in his ministry that he actually went to the synagogues first, and he reasoned with them from 
the scriptures. And so we saw that Paul preached to everybody. We also see that he preached frankly. Uh, he didn't pull any punches. He said that when he testified to both the Jews and the Greeks in verse 21, he preached repentance toward God. Well, repentance implies that people are on the wrong path. And Paul was not afraid to tell them that. There are some preachers that are afraid of offending their congregations. The irony is that when they are afraid of offending their congregations and don't do that, they oftentimes offend God, which doesn't seem to bother them in the least. Maybe God is a more forgiving audience than congregations. I don't know. But we're told that Paul spoke frankly. He told them that they were sinners and they were in need of repentance. He spoke comprehensively. Paul was not sort of one of those one-hit wonders that hammered on the same theme over and over again. He preached the whole counsel of God to all the people, all the time, and he did it diligently. And he worked hard at it. Paul said he toiled. We said that if you're going to be an effective witness for Christ, whether you're called to the ordained ministry or you are just called to serve Christ and represent him wherever you are, in whatever capacity as a lay person, you've got to work at it. This is not easy. Most things in life, if you think about it, most of the things in life that really do count are not easy. Marriage. How many of you think marriage is just, just easy? You've never been married. Uh, how many of you think raising children is easy? If you think so, you've never had children. It is not easy. Most of the things in life that matter, that are significant, they are difficult, and we have to work at them, and Paul did. And one might argue that the most important thing that you and I can do is to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and bring glory to our Father in heaven, and it's going to take work. And finally, Paul preached with no thought of gain. Now, perhaps in this context, Paul was thinking that he wasn't preaching with any thought of material gain. He wasn't expecting that he was going to make a lot of money as an evangelist or as an apostle. But I think it's more than that. Paul wasn't expecting that he was going to be popular necessarily. Sometimes that's what we want, isn't it? We want to be effective so that we can be popular, so that we can be praised. I can tell you it's one of the dangers of the ministry that if your love language are words of praise, look out. Because there will be times when you do not feel loved. Paul preached with no thought of gain. And so we see this man as he is reminding the Ephesians of these facts. Now this is where we pick up today. Paul then went on to give these elders a charge. He was leaving them, as I said. He was going on to Jerusalem. He makes it very clear. I think we're going to find out why Paul made it very clear that they were never going to see him again. I mean, you might think to yourself, well, how does Paul know? You know, he doesn't know that he's not going to pass through Ephesus again. I think Paul knew very well that he was not likely to see these people again, and he makes that very clear to them. He was not coming back. And yet he was deeply concerned for the life of the church, and so what was he going to do? He was going to pass on the ministry to others. Those of you who've been in the Bible study that I've been teaching on Sunday mornings, uh, we studied the book of 2 Timothy, and we said that Paul was passing on the mantle of leadership to his young protege, Timothy, who was the bishop, incidentally, here in Ephesus, leader of the church here in Ephesus. 
And Paul was passing that ministry on to him. Why? Because at the time, Paul was imprisoned in Rome, in the Mamertine jail, awaiting execution. And he knew that the church's ministry needed to continue, and he was not going to be able to lead it, so he had to pass on that mantle of leadership to others. Well, Paul knew he was leaving Ephesus, he was going on to Jerusalem, and he knew, he knew because of the witness of the Holy Spirit that he was not coming back. And so what did he have to do? He had to appoint elders, leaders in the church, to be responsible for the flock, the flock that he had toiled and labored over for those two years. And what does he say to these elders? What is Paul's instruction to the elders? Well, take a look at verses 28 and following. We are in Acts chapter 20 now, finishing the chapter. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The first thing that Paul says that the elders are to do is they are to keep watch. That's what a shepherd does, isn't it? A shepherd keeps watch over the flock to protect the sheep, to guard the sheep. And that's what Paul says. I'm leaving you, I'm entrusting you with the responsibility, and your first responsibility, above all else, is to keep watch over the flock. Now, it's interesting what Paul goes on to say. He says, keep watch, which is your job as overseers. Now, how many of you are reading out of a study Bible? whether it's the NIV study Bible or the English Standard Version study Bible, do you have any heading above verse 17? What does it say? All right, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Does anybody else have that same heading somewhere? Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, that sort of thing. It's interesting that the word elder is used there because in verse 17 it says, he called the elders of the church. But Paul calls them something very different. When he goes on and he says, keep watch, he says that they are what? Overseers. The word that is translated as elder here is presbyteros, from which we get the term priest, from which we get the denomination presbyterian, presbyteros, elder, a leader. In the Presbyterian church, you have teaching elders. You have ruling elders. Elders, people are responsible for the building, for the ministry. But Paul uses a very different word here when he says, keep watch. He doesn't say as elders, he says as overseers. What's the Greek word there? It's the word episkopos, from which we get the term episcopal, from which we get the English term bishop. That is the primary responsibility of someone who's called to be a bishop, is to keep watch. Watch for what purpose? Well, to watch over the well-being of the flock and to watch out for any dangers that might be coming that might threaten the flock. It used to be in the old 1928 ordinal. It's not in the 1979 prayer book. I'm not going to make a commentary any more than that except to say that in the 1928 prayer book, when a bishop was consecrated in the Episcopal or the Anglican tradition, one of the things that the bishop vowed to do was to drive away from the church any strange 
or erroneous doctrine. So it was the responsibility of the bishop to what? Watch out for the flock and guard against any wolves that might threaten it. Incidentally, that was dropped in the 1979 ordinal. As I said, I'm not going to comment any further than that. You can draw whatever conclusions you'd like to draw. But Paul says that they were to be overseers and they were to keep watch. First of all, they are to keep watch over themselves. There's an old expression, if the head be well, the body be well. The leaders were to keep vigilant watch over their own lives so that they could effectively keep watch over the flock of Christ. Keep your finger there in Acts and turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment. Very powerful section of the epistle. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers. Now remember, he's writing to Timothy, this young man who's his protege. I always picture this as an ordination service. Now, those of you who are in the Sunday school class, you've heard me use this before, but there comes a point in an ordination service where if you're the preacher for the ordination service, you get to a point in your sermon where you turn to the ordinand, the person who's about to have the laying on of hands, and you say, stand up, and you give them a charge. You remind them of their responsibilities, and you give them a charge of what they are to do as a minister of the gospel. It's a very moving scene. Well, I always imagine Paul preaching an ordination service to young Timothy here. And he says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Paul doesn't say they may come. It's likely to come. He says there will come times of difficulty. Now, as I read through this, I want you to ask yourself, is this a description only of the first century? Or is this a description of 21st century postmodern America today? But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? People. First thing Paul says, you want to know why there are going to be times of trouble? Because of people. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They're going to be brutal, not loving good. They're going to be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And Paul says, these are just the members of your vestry. <laughs> oh, wait, no, it's, it's not actually in there, sorry. Paul makes it very clear there are going to be times of difficulty. And oftentimes, the difficulty is not going to be from the outside. The opposition is not always going to be obvious. It's sometimes going to be subtle. He goes on to say, just as Giannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. These are people within the church. Not people on the outside. 
He goes on to say, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. He makes it very clear people are going to oppose you. And that's why he goes on to say, But I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, chapter 4, is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom you preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. I think that's a marvelous expression. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, teachers and preachers who will tell them what they want to hear, not necessarily what they need to hear. And he says people will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into mist. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the first thing that Paul says to the Ephesian elders is keep watch. And keep watch over your own life, lest you fall prey to these temptations. And then he says you are to keep watch over the flock. Once you've taken a look at your own life, then be vigilant over the flock of Christ. How were they to do this? Well, it's interesting to note, Paul rarely uses this image of a shepherd. Now, the image of a shepherd is frequently used in the Old Testament to describe God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23. It's frequently used in the New Testament, but it is rarely used by Paul. It's more often used by who? Jesus. When John's Gospel said, I am the good shepherd. What made Jesus the good shepherd? He said, I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. So when Paul says that these men were to be shepherds, they were to be shepherds, under shepherds of the great shepherd. And they were to shepherd in the same way that Jesus shepherded, if necessary, by laying down their lives. Now, that may not have meant a physical laying down of their lives, but it meant a setting aside of their own desires, their own dreams, their own passions, for the sake of others. For the sake of others. Christ first, others second, and themselves last. And so that's Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders to watch, to watch over the flock of Christ, to be under shepherds of the good shepherd, if necessary, to lay down their life for the sheep. Then Paul goes on, we're told, to pray for them. Go back now to Acts chapter 20, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. The book of Acts doesn't tell us what Paul prayed for, but I think we can assume what Paul prayed for. He commended them to the care of God. What we oftentimes do when we send somebody off or when we depart, we commend our loved ones to the care of God, don't we? We pray that God will watch over them, keep them safe, protect them, particularly from any danger. So he commended them to the grace of God. But then Paul does one thing more. He reminds them of the tremendous blessings that they have received in Christ Jesus. And now I commend you, verse 32, to God, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance 
among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I think Paul is talking here about a real blessing, a real inheritance one day. I think that's why his mind automatically goes to silver and gold and those kinds of perishable things. Paul is saying, look, I know that we are not going to see each other in this life. I know that fierce wolves are going to come in and threaten the flock. I'm asking you to sacrifice yourself, your own dreams, your own happiness for the sake of others. And I realize that that is a great deal to ask, but I want to remind you that this life is not all there is. It is brief, and there is stored up for those who are faithful greater things than you can ask for or imagine there is an inheritance that is imperishable that awaits you in heaven. I think that's a wonderful message for us as Christians. We have a job to share the faith. And oftentimes it is inconvenient. It is not easy. But when we set ourselves aside, we serve others in the name of Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Lo and behold, we discover that there is stored up for us greater things than we can ask for or imagine. And then we're told, this section ends, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And so they accompanied him to the ship. C.S. Lewis once said, that Christians never say goodbye. They simply say, I'll see you later. And I think that's how it was with Paul. But still, it was a bitter parting for these people. They had loved him. He was their spiritual father in the faith, and they knew that they would not see him again. I felt that way yesterday when I heard of Billy Graham's death. Here was a man who's had a profound impact on the lives of so many our second child is named for him. His name is Jackson Graham. I gave him a name that he was really going to have a hard time living up to. He's named for Stonewall Jackson and Billy Graham. All right, live up to that name. Go ahead, give it a shot. Well, that's a name to live down, unfortunately, but uh, he can give it a shot too. But yes, I felt that way about Billy Graham. He's had such a profound impact. And somehow he has managed to come through it without all of the scandals that have attended so many other evangelists and televangelists over the years. He really was a good and faithful servant, and it was hard to see him go. Now, we know that for years he's been pretty much inactive. His health has been failing. And yet for many of us, it was a bitter parting. Somebody said to me, they texted me yesterday, and they said, Billy Graham died today. I said, no, Billy Graham graduated today. And he did. Well, that's how it was for Paul. And so he set sail off to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the narrative today, Acts chapter 21. And I want to go ahead and read through these verses. It's an important section. I don't know that we'll get through the whole thing today. But I said if Acts chapter 21 gives us a picture of Paul, the public figure, but also the private figure, well, here in Acts chapter 21, we get a picture of Paul the all-too-human figure. You know, sometimes we think that, yes, Paul was a great sinner, but then he was saved and he became a, a great giant for the faith, and he did. But does that mean that Paul never made mistakes again? Does it mean that Paul never sinned again? 
When you become a Christian, does that mean that from here on out, your life is going to be perfect and you're going to follow Jesus Christ? You're never going to backslide. You're never going to falter. How many of you, how's that working out for you today? <laughs> Probably not so great, huh? This is one of the reasons why Martin Luther said, we are simul ustus et peccator. We're at the same time justified, that is, in a right relationship with God, and yet we're still sinners. You're still going to sin even when you are a Christian. Now, that sin should not be the thing that characterizes your life. If, if you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but nobody in the world can tell that you are, well, then there's a problem, let me tell you. Because Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. But even the greatest of Christians sometimes falter, and they do sin. There is plentiful redemption in the blood that has been spent. But we do need to understand that we are all going to sin from time to time. That's one of the reasons why every Sunday, and I'm so glad we do this in our tradition, we have a confession of sin. You know, you go into some churches, and they have prayers, and they have hymns, and they have a great sermon, but they don't confess their sins. We do that every Sunday, don't we? And I need it every Sunday. Truth be known, I need it every day. Repentance is not a one-time thing, my friends. It's a daily thing. Well, we're going to see a picture here in Acts chapter 21 of a good man, but a good man who I think fell, at least temporarily. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 21, and we'll go ahead and read through these first 26 verses. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Uh, the we that is being referred to here, of course, is Luke. Um, Luke is including himself in Paul's traveling group. That's why he speaks as we, not as they, but we. So that's an indicator to us in the book of Acts that Luke is with them. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. This is the same Philip that we encountered earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the same Philip the Evangelist. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying there many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. 
And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, bear in mind, Jerusalem is really the center of the church in the ancient world. So Paul is going there, and he's repeating all the things that he had done. He is reporting what God had done through his ministry to these people who were the leaders of the church. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. I sort of think that at this point... Um, James is feeling a little intimidated. Paul's gone out and he's established all these churches everywhere. And James said, well, now just hold on there, Paul. We, we know you've done a great job and praise the Lord for that. But you don't, don't think that we've been sitting on our hands here in Jerusalem. Look at all the many thousands who are among the Jews who have believed. That may be a little bit of hyperbole. The church in Jerusalem was not that large. Now, it may mean Jews of the diaspora and other places. But I think there's a little bit of defense here. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Some years ago, Erwin Lutzer, who was, until just a few years ago, actually, the pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, one of the great churches in America, wrote a book, and the book was entitled, When a Good Man Falls. And in that, he recounted the stories of the great heroes of the faith who, at times in their lives, fell from the grace of God, so to speak who sinned. He recounts, for example, Moses. You all recall that Moses was the man who was called by God to deliver his people from their captivity in Egypt. But Moses thought that he knew how to best do that. We're told that when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, what did he do? He attacked the Egyptian and he killed him. And the result was that he got everything off track and he had to flee. He became a refugee. He had to flee into the wilderness for 40 years before God called him and said, now come on back and do what I told you to do originally. That's a perfect example of a very willful, obstinate person trying to take matters into his own hands. Moses is mentioned in this book. Samson is mentioned in the book. You all know the story of Samson and the Philistines, this man who had been a great giant, who had been a judge, but a man who fell prey to the wiles the attractiveness of Delilah, and gave up the secret to his strength and had his locks shorn. 
The book tells the story of David, a man after God's own heart, Israel's great king, but a man who had an adulterous relationship with another man's wife and then in an attempt to cover it up, had that man murdered. Tells the story of Peter. Peter, this, this man, who I always say was inflicted with foot and mouth disease. The only time he ever opened his mouth was to put the other foot in oftentimes. But you think about Peter, this man who followed Jesus, but when it came right down to it, after he had confessed Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then denied the Lord three times, didn't he? Even with a curse in an effort to save his own skin. At one point, denying Christ to a little girl. Hardly the kind of heroic person that we would expect an apostle to be. Moses, Samson, David, Peter, all great heroes of the faith. We all know their stories, and yet they were all good men that fell. What about Paul? I think what we have here in Acts chapter 21 is an example of a good man, in this case the apostle Paul, falling. Being outside the will of God. Now I realize that is a very serious charge to make. And so I want to make my case here. I'm not the only one, by the way, who thinks this way. There are other scholars that feel this way. There are others who disagree. But I'm inclined to think that that is exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 21. I think Paul made a mistake. I think he was outside the will of God. And I think that it was almost, almost, had it not been for the divine intervention of God, it would have been disastrous for the cause of the gospel, the gospel that Paul had labored for for decades. And here's why. It has to do with this whole journey to Jerusalem. Paul, we said, was intent on going to Jerusalem. He wanted to get there for the festival, and we're told that one of the reasons he wanted to go to Jerusalem was because he had been collecting a fund. He had been collecting a fund, financial uh, gift from the Gentile churches that he was going to then present to the Jews, the Jerusalem Christians, because they were poor. The church in Jerusalem was a very beleaguered and persecuted church for any number of reasons. Number one, because they were mostly converts from Judaism, and now they were claiming that they believed the Messiah had already arrived and he had been crucified and resurrected, and many of the Jews found that problematic. In fact, many of them had them expelled from the synagogue. So they were being persecuted by their own people. They were also being persecuted by the Romans. Now, we live in an age in which things that are new are better. That's, that's what we think. Anything that's new is better than anything that is old. A new car is better than an old car. New refrigerator, better than the old refrigerator. New television, certainly better than an old refrigerator. Sometimes, uh, you know, the new girlfriend, the new boyfriend is better than the old girlfriend, the old boyfriend. That was not the case in the ancient world, especially among the Romans. The Romans had a deep respect for things that were ancient. They believed that things that were ancient were tried and they were true. So they had great respect. One of the reasons why they mimicked the Greeks in so many ways. And so they had deep respect for Judaism. They allowed the Jews a great deal of leeway. They did not do that necessarily for Christians because they regarded the Christians as something new as aberrant. And so the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted by Jews. It was also being persecuted by Gentiles. It was a poor church. Paul had been at that church in Antioch in Acts chapter 3. That church, we said, that changed the world. And one of the things that made that church so unique was that it was a mixture of all kinds of people. Remember? 
There were rich people, there were poor people, there were Gentiles, there were Jews. There were people of high estate, low estate, educated, ignorant. They were all together in one place, and they were bearing witness to Christ, and it was a perfect, beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God one day is going to be like. And Paul longed to see that not be just a, an isolated experience. Paul wanted to see that to be a picture of the whole church. And so one of the things, part of his missionary strategy, was that he had been collecting money from the Gentile churches. Now, it's only referenced once in the book of Acts. But if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's very clear that this was a big part of Paul's strategy. In fact, in, in those letters, Paul comes along a little strong. He actually orders people to give money. Can you imagine a preacher standing up and giving a stewardship sermon in which he orders the congregation to give money? I don't imagine that that would go over very well. Paul actually does this because this is so important to him. And he wants to bring this money, bring it to the church where these Jerusalem Christians are and say, this is from your brothers and sisters. And they would say, brothers and sisters, where? He'd say, oh, well, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Corinth, your Gentile brothers. In the church, you see, these two factions of the church would be welded together. That was Paul's great missionary strategy, just what he wanted to do. And so this was part of what he was doing. He was setting his face toward Jerusalem. He wanted to get there quickly, and he had been collecting this money. But here's the problem. There's a great deal to suggest here in the book of Acts that Paul had been warned not to go to Jerusalem. And when I said that Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem, I don't mean that he was just warned by people who were concerned for his welfare. And there are lots of times when people want to deter you from doing things that you need to do because they don't want to see you get hurt. That was not the case here. This was not just people who didn't want to see Paul get hurt. We're told that Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an entirely different matter. Let me show you an example. Turn to Acts chapter 20. I've already been there. But let's take a look at verses 22 and 23. Paul, again speaking to the Ephesian elder, says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So at the very least, Paul was well aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit was testifying to his spirit that he was going to face opposition, he was likely going to face imprisonment and difficulty in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, well, Paul knew that was going to be the case wherever he went. He'd already experienced that, true enough, but just, just hold on to that. Because you're going to see that these warnings get more intense. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now it's very interesting that Luke says, through the Spirit they were telling Paul what? Not to go to Jerusalem. In other words, this just wasn't their idea. They weren't just saying, Paul, we think this is a rather bad idea. We don't think you ought to go up there. Luke tells us through the Spirit they were told, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's much stronger than what had happened previously. And then you go on to Acts chapter 21, verses 7 and following. 
And you have this very dramatic visual image of what was going to happen to Paul. We're told that a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt or girdle, that's what they would wear around their waist to hike up their skirts, to hike up their robes, and he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says what? The Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So you have three occasions. One occasion where Paul is being told by the Holy Spirit himself that if he goes to Jerusalem, there's imprisonment waiting him. A little bit further, we're told that God speaks through the Ephesian elders by the Holy Spirit and warns Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then before Paul gets to Jerusalem, this prophet comes down, and by, we're told, the Holy Spirit tells Paul that if he goes, he's going to be bound hand and foot in Jerusalem. Now, those are three warnings. And we're told they're all by the power of the Holy Spirit. There may be a fourth warning. Now, I say there may be. We don't know. But if you flip ahead to Acts chapter 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. We're not there yet. But he gets arrested. And in the course of his arrest, he's standing trial, and he's giving testimony. And he is describing his own conversion. And this is what he said. And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, who's the him? Well, Jesus. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And so here is another occasion where Paul had been warned. It may be a previous occasion when you look at the flow of thought here. Paul may be describing his conversion. He may be talking about a previous occasion when he went to Jerusalem. But it's very clear he had been warned, at least on a previous occasion, that there was trouble in Jerusalem. Now, I would say we could disregard all of these warnings had it not been for the fact that Luke emphasizes that these warnings came to Paul, how? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a whole series of warnings. Now, if the Holy Spirit is warning you not to do something, and you're a Christian, what should you do? My advice is listen to the Holy Spirit. Did Paul? Well, obviously not. He went on to Jerusalem. And I think he went on to Jerusalem in disobedience of God's command. Now, we've heard, we need to say something in Paul's defense. I mean, when you, when you begin to accuse somebody like the Apostle Paul of being outside the will of the Lord, you've got to be very careful. And I think there are a number of things that we can say in Paul's defense. If, and I say if, if Paul was outside the will of God at this point in his life and in his ministry, it was probably motivated by a desire to help others. We can at least say that. At the very least, these were the actions of a strong-willed, obstinate man. And Paul was a strong-willed, obstinate man. Now, when we hear those words and we string them together, strong-willed, obstinate stubborn, we think that's a very negative thing, don't we? 
But I want you to understand, to go out into the Greco-Roman world and evangelize that pagan culture was going to take more than Casper Milk Toast. It was the fact that Paul was strong-willed, stubborn, and obstinate that made him so effective. What's the old expression? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, that was the Apostle Paul. When things were getting tough, the Apostle Paul got going. He didn't just throw in the towel. He didn't give up. He was tenacious. He was like a terrier. And that's one of the things that made him so effective as a minister. God uses all kinds of people, and they're not all the same. I don't think for one minute, for example, that Jesus was meek and mild. Now, we have a tendency to think of Jesus as meek, and he was meek, but I don't think meek in the way that we understand it. When we think meek, we think weak. We're told that Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. If you know Moses, he was by no means weak. Jesus was not weak. He was humble. But when he drove the money changers out of the temple and overthrew their tables, and on one account we're told he drove them out with a whip, Listen, folks, that's not weak. So I think we can say in Paul's defense that if he went to Jerusalem, it's because he was a strong-willed, obstinate man, and this was one of the things that God had used to make him a great witness. Second thing in Paul's defense that we can say is that he was going there out of a great love for his own people. Paul had a great heart for the Jews. That's why he was collecting this money. He makes it very clear in Romans chapter 9. He says, I have such a heart such a longing for my own people that I would be willing, now listen to this, I would be willing to be cut off from God for the salvation of my own people. Now let's just go ahead and put it in very plain terms. Paul was saying, I'd be willing to be sent to hell if my own people could be saved. And I don't think that that was hyperbole on Paul's part. I think he really meant it. Now, there are very few of us that would be willing to say, I am ready to go and die and go to hell that other people might be saved. We might be willing to die, but we want to go to heaven when we die. Paul had great compassion for his own people. Third thing we can say is that Paul had a great mission strategy. We've seen that already. Paul wanted to get the gospel out to many people as possible. And he knew that when these dividing walls of hostility between Jews and Greeks came tumbling down, that would be a powerful witness to the world. There were so many things in the ancient world that divided people. There are so many things that divide people today. But there in Antioch, he had seen that despite the differences, the one thing that the people held in common, that is a love of Jesus Christ, united them. And that's a powerful witness. It's a powerful testimony. And so Paul had a mission strategy, and this Jerusalem fund, quite frankly, was a big part of it. And the final thing that we can say in Paul's defense was this. Paul was perfectly willing to be imprisoned for the sake of Christ. Isn't that what he says to them here? Why are you doing this to me? I love the way it's put here by Luke. He says, why are you doing this? Why are you breaking my heart? Don't you understand? I'm perfectly willing, he says, to go to Jerusalem and suffer imprisonment and suffer death for the sake of the gospel. I am prepared to do that. Jesus Christ suffered everything for me. I'm willing to suffer for him. He died for me. I'm willing to die for him. And Paul meant it. His whole life was a testimony to that fact. His whole ministry had been persecuted in every place he'd been. So I think we could say all of those things in Paul's defense, especially that last part, that he was willing to go to Jerusalem, he was not afraid to go to Jerusalem, and he was prepared to die for Christ. But 
There's always a but. But that was not the point. The point was not that Paul was willing to go and suffer and die in Jerusalem. The question is, was he supposed to go and suffer and die in Jerusalem? And we cannot avoid the fact that over and over again he had been warned by the Holy Spirit not to go. Now, somebody might say, well, what's the big deal? All right, everybody makes a mistake. You know, that's the way we talk about sins today, don't we? We don't talk about sin as a grievous offense against the holiness of God anymore. I'm going to tell you something very important. You know, people are praying for revival, and I think that's wonderful. I, I think revival is important. But I can tell you as an historian that every time there has ever been a great revival in the history of the church, any time, it has always been preceded by something else. You know what's been preceded by? What? Not persecution. Repentance. It has always been preceded by the people of God gaining a deep and abiding awareness of their own sin and their own unworthiness and repenting of that, and that's when God the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in their lives and in the lives of of others. So if you're praying for revival, not just renewal, by the way, renewal's not a, renewal's a nice thing, but it's not a miracle. You know, when people say, oh, I want renewal. I don't want renewal. I want resurrection. That, that's a miracle. That, that's what Easter's all about. People say, I'm praying for the renewal of the Episcopal Church. I'm not. It's dead. I'm praying for revival. I'm praying for resurrection. I'm praying for that which was dead to be raised to a new life. See, that's the miracle of Christianity, my friends. Not renewal, but revival. Resurrection, that's real miracle. And if there's going to be that sort of thing, then we need to have a deep and abiding awareness of the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So those of you who are praying for revival, and I hope you are, and I hope the rest of you will as well, pray that we will have a deep and abiding sense of our own personal sins and our own corporate sins, that we might repent of those things and that God the Holy Spirit may begin to do a work in our lives. That is what is absolutely essential in the life of the church today. So Paul, you say, well, he could have just gotten off track and it's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. When God tells us not to do something, there's normally more than one reason why he's telling us not to do it. And that becomes very clear as we progress through this story itself. What's the big deal? Because there are always consequences of disobedience. And in the case of Paul, the consequences here were almost a complete compromise of the gospel that he had labored for for decades. A potential compromise of the gospel itself. Uh, keep your finger there in Acts and turn two books to 1 Corinthians for just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul describing the Christian life, the Christian calling. Paul oftentimes employed military metaphors, oftentimes employed athletic metaphors. 
Here he employs the athletic metaphor, and here's what he says. He says, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be what? Disqualified. Paul says, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, I want you to understand that at this point in the book of Acts, Paul was in danger, having preached the gospel to others, of being disqualified. And if you want to know how that happens, you're going to have to come back next week. Now, here's the good news. I said he was in danger of being disqualified. In the end, we're going to see that he wasn't disqualified. But he was not disqualified because of anything that he had done. Paul ends up not being disqualified because God intervenes and refuses to allow him to be. And we'll take a look at that next week. So we'll come back and take a look at the rest of Acts chapter 21. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray for revival in your church. Lord, we know that this nation needs revival. But that's only going to come, Lord, when we are willing to admit as individual Christians, as individual believers, as the church corporate, and as a nation as a whole, that we have not been following your ways. We have turned our back on you, that we have been the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own destiny. And we need to acknowledge this, Lord, not just to admit it but to bewail it, to mourn over it. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us this day a deep and abiding sense of our own unworthiness, that we, recognizing that we are great sinners, might recognize that we have a great Savior, and the true resurrection and true life may be poured into us, into your church, that the kingdom may spread. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.